part four today, I want to talk to you about this. Give for God's kingdom. Give for God's kingdom. A lot of times we want to give to get something back or we want to give to feel good, but sometimes we just give because we love God. The reason that we are growing our building and our church and our campus is not just to show off a building, it's to show off all that God is doing for us and because we want more people to come to Jesus. Amen. When you hear the word kingdom, you think about castles and you think about streets of gold and, and, and pearl gates and jasper walls and that's in heaven, but that is not the kingdom. The kingdom is people. Everybody say people. people. That is what the kingdom is about. And that's why we're doing what we're doing. We're, we're turning away kids at our day camp. We're turning away kids for after school care. And I mean, if I'm afraid if anybody else comes in the building here, there's not going to be a seat left. And then the fire marshal's going to show up and it's all going to go to hell. I'm just kidding. So we're trying to get a bigger building so we can have more people come to Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus wants more people. And everything he's done in your life, we want to see that duplicated into the lives of others. So I have three points for you today on giving to God's kingdom. Point number one is this. We gift for treasure. We gift for treasure. When you think of treasure, argh, you know, you think of Jack Sparrow, right? You think of gold and you think of jewels, but that is not the treasure that we're after. There are two parables in the Bible that are just one scripture long. One of those two parables is this one. Matthew 13, 44, Jesus said this. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid, and for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. Now, most pastors preach this parable incorrectly, in my opinion, okay? Most pastors say this. They say that the kingdom is the treasure. We find it, and then we sell everything to be able to get that treasure. That is incorrect, and I'm going to prove to you why. It's incorrect because, number one, you can't find it. You cannot find God. You cannot find God. You did not find God. God found you. God is looking, still looking for some of y'all, and some of y'all are still hiding from God. And you can hide in church, by the way. It's a good place to hide. But God is still looking for some of y'all. We allow God to find us. And I'm going to prove it to you, because whenever you try to study a scripture, you can't get man's interpretation. You have to get the Bible's interpretation of the scripture. So if you ever don't understand a scripture, you just look at the rest of the Bible, because the same guy wrote the entire book. You understand what I'm saying? Okay, so let me prove to you that that's an incorrect way to teach this parable. Um, the Bible says that we love him because he first... He first loved us. The Bible says while we were yet sinners, he died for us. In other words, while we didn't want him, he was still doing what he could to want us. The Bible says we were so blind we couldn't find anything. Let me ask you a Garden of Eden question. Um, did God go looking for Adam and Eve or did Adam and Eve go looking for God? God went looking for them, right? Okay, so you can't, you can't find it. Here's the other reason that's incorrect. It's because you can't buy it. It's not for sale. No matter how much money you give and no matter what you do, you can't get to heaven based on that. So let me teach you the parable correctly. Here's the correct teaching. The field is the world. The man is Jesus. And listen, the treasure, the treasure is you. You're the treasure. The streets of gold are not the treasure. The, the, the jasper walls, they're not the treasure. The pearl gates are not the treasure. You are the treasure. Jesus gave up everything for you, and I'm going to prove it to you scripturally, okay? 1 Corinthians 6.20, you were bought. You didn't buy him. He bought you with a price. 2 Corinthians 4.7, we are treasure in earth and vessels. 1 Peter 2.9, you are God's chosen treasure. And here's the thing. It's not about a parable um, about what we do to get to heaven. It's a parable about what Jesus did to get to you. Now, Jesus, according to the parable, you can put it back up there. Um, according to the parable, Jesus bought the entire field. 
He bought the entire field, right? He bought the whole world. He's already bought the whole world. He bought the homosexuals. He bought the Democrats. He bought the Republicans. He bought them all. He's already bought the whole thing, okay? The whole thing. I'll prove it to you. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says Christ reconciled the world to himself. The world. Not counting people's sins against him. John, you're not going to like this. And don't email me because I'm not going to read it. God is not angry at the world. He's not angry. He's not angry at the rainbow flags of pride that are representing his promise wrongly. He's not angry at the Muslims. not angry at the liars and adults. He's not angry. He's in love. God loved the world so much that he gave his son. The next scripture says he did not come to condemn the world. Now, I got a few people I would like for him to condemn, but he won't do it because he did not come to condemn the world. He came to save the world. It's up to each individual person to accept that free gift, but he's not angry. In fact, let me take it further. If he's upset with anybody, he's upset with us who know better and we should be doing more to win that treasure to him. So if he's upset, he's upset with us, okay, for not doing more. He's sad at what they're doing. He's not angry at them. He's not angry at them. Um, so here's my question. How much was the field of treasure worth? Uh, what did that field of treasure, this huge field filled with treasure, um, how much did it cost? Now, the value of something is based on what someone will pay for it. You understand that? It's not based on what you think it is. It's based on what someone will actually pay. I do comic book conventions, and so I'll see a comic book that's, you know, I want it, it's, it's worth $300, because on eBay, that's what they're selling for, is 300 this comic book, and the guy's got $500 on it, and I said, sir, I'll give you 300 No, I've had this comic book since I was a child, and I know you have, it might mean a lot to you, but to the world, they're only gonna pay 300 bucks. So I'll give you 300 bucks, yes or no. You're with me, it's only value what someone will pay. Uh, Barry Bonds, when he hit the 756th home run, uh, there was a guy that got the ball, you know, and the guy, the story says the guy was a man and he had a beer in one hand and a hot dog in the other hand and he managed not to drop the beer or the hot dog and get the home run. That's just like a man, right? To not drop his, there's an object coming at him at a hundred and something miles an hour and I'm not dropping my hot dog, you know, for this. But he gets the ball. As soon as he grabs the ball, they whisk him away. They authenticate the ball. And before the game is over, people are offering him $3 million for the ball. It was worth 10 bucks before Barry Bonds hit it. After he hits the home run, it's worth $3 million. You know why it was worth that? Because somebody was willing to pay for it. Someone was willing to pay for it. So here's my question. What are you, what is your worth? Like, what, what, are, what, are, what are each one of you worth? You know, something that really ticks me off all growing up is when I saw pastors treat people based on how much money they're worth. I mean, I saw it all growing up, and it made me regurgitate. It was horrible. You got somebody that walks in with, you know, a Rolex like that, and the, and the pastor's kissing their butt, and then somebody that doesn't like the guy on Monday, they treat them so, it, it disgusts me. Uh, whenever I first started my church, you know, I, I vowed I would never, ever, ever do that horrible thing to do. And I, I started pastoring at 26, and I'm meeting at the library in Soxley. I don't know what I'm doing. I know nothing. All I know is God called me. And so I, I called my friends that I know didn't go to church anywhere and invited them to church. And this one guy started coming who was a millionaire. Millionaire. He made over a million dollars a year. And every year he'd give a $12,000 check. And he'd hand it to me. He wouldn't put it in the box. He wanted to make sure I saw it. And, um, and then just so you know, if you make over a million dollars a year, 12000 is squat and God is not pleased and you're still stealing because it's not the tithe. So remember that. I'm going to tell you another story in a second, okay? It was, it was it's crud. It was nothing. But 
When you're 26 years old with five kids and you're working four jobs and you're starting a church and your salary is $250 a week, that $12,000 is your year's salary. So that was exciting to me. At 26, I was like, wow, I can't believe this. But it came at a cost. He had a negative mouth. He was opinionated. He always told me what I'm doing wrong and what I need to do different. It was the worst, worst, worst thing in the world. I couldn't wait for him to leave the church. In fact, one day he told me, he said, do you know how much money I'm worth? I said, huh? He said, man, I'm worth so much money. I just went and opened up a bank account over at so-and-so. They said they've never seen anybody open up a bank account with this much money in it. Now, about that same time, 26 years old, starting a church, a few weeks before my first service, I had a garage sale to try to get money to buy a keyboard and a microphone, you know. And this lady comes up on a tricycle, like an adult tricycle, not an engine kind, but the kind that you pedal. And you could tell she was extremely poor, missing a whole bunch of teeth. She wasn't dressed well. She's stuck to high heaven. And she's in my garage sale. And I started talking to her. I said, hey, I'm starting a church in a few weeks. Do you go to church anywhere? She said, nope. I said, well, would you come to, come to my church? She's like, nope. I said, come on, it'll be fun, you know. And, and she said, where is it at? And I said, we're meeting at the library. She said, well, I don't have a ride. I, I, I don't drive. I said, well, I'll pick you up. She said, you're what? I said, yeah, I'll pick you up. She was like 50 or 60 years old. I said, yeah, I'll pick you up. She said, no, you won't. I said, no, I really will. I'll pick you up. It might just be me, you, and my family that are at church, but, you know, I don't, I don't have much to do. You know, I'll pick you up. So she gave me her address. I said, I'll call you before. She said, I don't have a phone. I said, well, you better be ready. When I get there, you better be ready, you know. I'm nice, but I'm impatient, so you better be ready. <laughs> and um, so when I went to pick her up, she lived in a trailer that was cut in half by a storm and exposed to all the weather. You could see the whole inside of the thing. And I picked her up, and of course, she stunk to heaven, but she had cancer or something because she ended up dying. I, I preached her funeral, but she would get drunk every day off of Listerine. Because you can get drunk because there's alcohol and Listerine. It's a cheaper way to get drunk if you're incredibly... Now, I'm not telling y'all to do it, so... No. <laughs> but her breath smelled minty fresh, but from the neck down, it was bad, you know. So I'd pick her up, and I'd roll the windows down in my car, had my suit on, you know, and we would go to church, and we did this every week. And I'd pick her up, and I'd take her, and we ended up getting her food, nicer clothes. We gave her um, ways to be able to clean herself and so forth without running water. We gave her wipes and all that. Get bought her perfume. She started doing, so she kept coming to church. She got saved 23 times. Um, <laughs> and listen, I found out she was making $65 a month. That's how much she lived off of. She had a vegetable garden she lived off of, and we would start bringing her food. But she was dying, and she, she didn't really care, you know, about living very much. And, um, and she made $65 a month, and she would put in the offering $2 a week, which is more than the tithe, which means she gave more than the millionaire. One day after church, the millionaire said to me, uh, John Paul, he wouldn't even call me pastor. He said, John Paul, you're taking me to lunch today. I said, oh, no, man, I got stuff to do. He said, nope, you better take me to lunch today. And I said, I have to take, and her name was Donna. And I'll tell you that because she's in heaven now. And I said, I'm taking Donna home. And he said this to me. He, I'll never forget. He said, why do you waste time with people like that? Now, at that point, I felt like that was my cue to minister to him. And um, there's something about me you need to know that the gift that God's given me is the ability to write words and communicate. So don't ever get in a verbal battle with me because you will lose so bad. I can kill you with my words. I can destroy you with my words. So this is right when texting came out and I had a flip phone. You had to see, you know, that kind of thing. And so... 
And I'm impatient, so I knew I don't have time to write a paragraph. But I can get one good sentence in before I hit send, you know. So to the millionaire, I sent him this. I said, Donna is worth more money than you will ever make. Sin. And I felt so good about that, too. And I still feel good about it. Until he called later, it didn't go well. But anyway, and so I hit sin. So do you know how much Donna is worth? Um, she's worth the highest price that's ever been paid for anything in the world. Did you know that? The highest price that's ever been paid for anything was paid for you. It was paid from the king, not a king of a nation, not a king of a country, not even the king of the world. The king of the universe got off of his throne where angels were serving him. And he came to this hellhole we call earth. And he turned himself into a human and he gave his blood, his life, his tears, and his pain for Donna and for every single one of you. We're expanding our ministry because we're trying to get the same treasure that Jesus is trying to get. You are his treasure. And a great price was paid for you. And we just want more people to hear it. See, the reason I say he's not angry at the world is because they don't know better. They don't know what I'm telling you. We know. It's our responsibility to bring them in. We know this truth. Okay, point number two is this. We give for people. Because people is the treasure. That's what we're giving for people. We, we, don't, we don't know until we get to heaven exactly how many people will come to the Lord or whose lives will be changed by our gifts. But that's why we give. Ecclesiastes 11 to invest what you have in others, you'll make a profit. I love business. I love investment, profit, investment, profit, investment, profit. You'd think it would say invest in your own dreams and then they'll come true. Invest in your desires and you'll be happy in life. Invest in yourself and you'll have everything you want. That is not the Bible way. It says when you invest in people, you make a profit. Do you know the only investment that lasts past this lifetime is people? Stock market, you win, you lose, you invest in people, you win every single time. Even if you don't see the fruit right now, you're sowing seed. You're so, uh, God cares about people more than anything in the universe. Now, let me ask you a question. This may be a tough one. You may not get it right. It's okay. Are Democrats people, yes or no? Yeah. Are Republicans people, yes or no? Yeah. Are Muslims people? Yeah. Are homosexuals people? Yeah. He cares about them more than anything. More than the sunrise and the sunset and the majestic mountains and the oil. He cares about them more than anything in the universe. Anything. One of my favorite stories is from 19, uh, I think it was 1913, 1936. Uh, the Olympics were held in Berlin. And Hitler was on the throne there. And he's in charge. And Hitler did not want any black people to come to the Olympics, much less be a part of it and compete. But there was a young, black, strong, fast man from America named Jesse Owens. And Jesse Owens, man, he was one of the best, and everyone from America loved him, but everyone in Russia hated him. He's out there in the field, and there's 100,000 Germans booing and hissing and screaming obscenities at Jesse Owens. Now imagine trying to do something you've never done in life before, trying to accomplish a great feat, and you're by yourself, and you got your own mind against you. That's one thing. Then imagine 100,000 people of the opposite skin color different nationality who hate you and are letting you know in front of the whole world. 
He was doing the running long jump, and as his first attempt went off, his foot crossed the line and he faulted. So they start him back over on his second attempt, and he runs to jump, and his foot crosses the line the second time, and he faults again. If Jesse Owens crosses the line the third time and he faults, he's disqualified and he's out of the race and cannot compete. Well, his main competitor there was a German guy named Luz Long. Luz Long and Jesse, they were just as fast, just as strong as each other, and all of Russia loved Luz. But as Luz saw Jesse out there in the field, and he's so distraught, and everyone's booing him, and he's already defaulted twice, and if he does it again, he's going to lose, Luz Long does the unthinkable. He walks out to the field amidst 100,000 of his peers, and he puts his arm around Jesse Owens, and he begins to encourage him in his ear. He says, Jesse, you've jumped 26 feet before many times. You only need 23 feet to win. If you'll just move your starting mark back three or four inches, you'll easily make it. And he made it, and Jesse Owens tells the story. The reason that he broke the world record that day and won four gold medals, he attributes it to Luz Long. Listen, Proverbs 21.7, you destroy yourself by refusing to help other people. Some of you right now are sad, lonely, discouraged, poor in heart. And here's the reason. You got your mind on yourself all the time. You're always thinking about your problems, your needs, what you're going through. Invest in somebody else. People are the kingdom. There was a, a great prophet in the Old Testament named Elijah. Elijah was a great man of God, a little bit moody, but still one of the great prophets. And, um, and, and, and he was traveling one day, and he's doing things for God. He's building the church, you know, as, as a whole, building the kingdom of God. And he met a teenager named Elisha. Now, it just so happens their names are similar, so it makes it a difficult way to tell the story. But Elijah is older, Elisha is younger. We all got it? So Elisha is a teenager, and he sees this man of God, and something inside of him says, I need to help make his dreams come true. I need to help push him up. I need to serve him. I need to help him do what he's doing in ministry. I need to make his vision come to pass. It says in 1 Kings 19, 21, Elisha followed Elijah as his servant, assistant, helper, and right-hand man. Why would a teenager do this? I mean, when you're a teenager, you got big dreams of your own. You got things you want to accomplish for yourself. Why would he find another man's ministry and think, I want to help him succeed? Because he knew if you help somebody else's dreams come true, God will always make sure there's somebody to help your dreams come true. If you help push somebody else up, God will always make sure there's somebody to push you up. And so he did. He served Elijah year after year after year. He was so faithful. As Elijah got to be an old man, he's about to die. And Elijah asks Elisha a very interesting question. In 2 Kings 2.9, he says, what do you want me to do for you before I'm taken up to heaven? And Elisha said this, you know what? I want to be twice the man of God you are. I want a double anointing. I want double the joy. I want double the wisdom. I want double the healing power. I want double what you've done. And you know what God said? You get it. Here's what's so interesting about this story. Elisha did not know the entire time he's pushing Elijah up, he was actually investing in his own destiny. He had no idea. He was just doing it to be a good guy and help somebody. But as he helped Elijah go further, he was actually putting seeds in a harvest for God to help him go further. 
And a double anointing. In other words, if he had helped Elijah get to a three, God was going to help him get to a six. If he helped Elijah get to a five, God was going to help him get to a ten. If he helped Elijah get to a seven, God was going to help him get to a fourteen. Double anointing. Everybody say double. double. Do you know that Elijah is known for doing seven major miracles in the Bible? Major. Seven major miracles. He brought a kid back from the dead. He, um, he killed 51 bad guys with lightning. Like all kind of cool things. Seven major. And there was Elisha to see all of them and help him the whole time. So a double anointing, a true double anointing, if Elijah did seven, that means Elisha would have to do 14. Y'all did not graduate from around here. So that's great. We have a lot of people from out of town. Okay, so 14. And so Elisha starts doing miracle after miracle. Three, five, seven, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. He's getting older. Thirteen. He's an old man. Thirteen miracles and he dies. Wait a minute. I thought God promised him a double portion. That's not double. That's thirteen. Lucky number, but not what he wanted. They threw his body into an open grave. I can imagine his tombstone said, one miracle shy from my dream coming true. Or maybe something like this, wasted time helping somebody else. Why did I waste time with that other old man? Why did I, man, I wanted a double anointing. And look, I didn't make it. A year goes by, he's up in heaven, his body's you know, dead and gone. There's bones laying in the grave. There was a battle going on a year later near that grave. These three guys were fighting and doing their best, and one of the three guys got killed. And his two buddies, they wanted to do something for the, their friend, but they didn't have time because the bad guys are coming. So they just take his body, and they throw it in Elisha's open grave. In 2 Kings 13, 21, they quickly threw the dead man into Elisha's grave. But when the corpse touched the bones of Elisha, the man came alive and walked out of the grave. There it was, miracle number 14. When you give to the kingdom of God, not even death can stop God from doing what he said he would do in your life. I bet Elisha's up in heaven just waiting. Touch my bones. Touch my bones in the dead body. Can you imagine three guys from Aner like out hunting and one of them gets shot and I don't know what to do. We don't want anybody to know about it. And they throw it and all of a sudden the dead body comes alive. <laughs> Oh, that's great. Okay, so let me, let me read you something that I did not write. I didn't write this. I didn't write it. And I don't agree with all of it, but I agree with the last part. It says, if you want happiness for a day, go fishing. I don't agree with that. I hate fishing. If you want happiness for a month, win the lottery. If you want happiness for a year, get married. No, I didn't write that. Okay? <laughs> but if you want happiness for a lifetime, help others. I'm telling you, it'll change your life when you realize we're doing this for people. Point number three is this last point. Give extravagantly. Extravagantly. Uh, for those of you that don't know, there are three types of giving in the Bible. There's tithing, which is the base minimum. is 10% undesignated straight to the local church. The second is offerings. Offerings is when you bake somebody a pie or you give to a mission or you buy somebody's lunch. It's everything above. But the third level is something that God only asks us to do, I believe, once or twice in a lifetime. And that is extravagant offerings. It's whenever we sacrifice so big for the kingdom of God that it hurts. 
It's when we give something so much that we feel like, man, this is going to put a dent in what I wanted to do in life. Um, my, my, I, have a, I have a life verse. A life verse. A life verse is a scripture that God gave me when I, I was 20 years old. It's lasted me 22 years. I've never gone one year, one week of my life without thinking about it, meditating it on or, or quoting it. Now, when I tell you my life verse, you have to pretend like you love it. Okay, because this is my life first, and it's, it's like me saying this is my favorite movie in the whole world, and you better text me and tell me it was great and you love it, right? Okay, so this is my life first, and it means so much to me, and I don't use it much because it's so special to me, but it's very pertinent for the sermon today. It's with my favorite guy in the Bible other than Jesus, <clears throat> David. And so David, um, God did so much for him. I mean so much for him. And he did so much, and so they come to David and they say, listen, because of everything God has done for you and the position you're in now in life, um, you're required to give God a sacrifice. You're required to sacrifice something. And David said, okay, well, what am I supposed to do? And when they told him the amount, he looked at them like they were crazy. He said, wait, wait, wait. You said it's a sacrifice. That amount you're telling me, that's, that's not that big of a deal. That's not going to hurt me. That's not. Don't you realize everything God has done for me? And you're telling me that's all I'm supposed to give back? And so this scripture has stayed with me for 22 years. 2 Samuel 24, 24, King David said, I will not offer to the Lord my God that which cost me nothing. It was time for a sacrifice. And David said, no, 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 the amount you're telling me, that's too small, man. Don't you realize all the blessings in my life? And, and listen, this also happened once in a lifetime. Abraham was asked to give extravagantly. What was Abraham's most extravagant gift? His son, his son, and he was going to do it. And then God stopped him. But guess who did give their son extravagantly? God did. That's right. Okay. So I want to close with this story in the gospel. This is probably the most uh, popular extravagant gift. John 12, one through six. And this is going to be your Bible study this week. I want you to read this and study it yourself. Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. There they made him a supper and Martha served but Lazarus sat at the table with him. Okay, just, just what we just read. The dude was dead two months before. He's been, he was dead. And now he's chilling out, relaxing and eating at a table with his family and Jesus. Now that just, I just, that just blows my mind. Like, what were you doing? Like, I was dead, but you know, now I pass the chips, you know, whatever. So it says this. Then Mary, and this is the special part, ready? If you're watching the Chosen TV series, oh, oh. Oh, I can't even get enough. It's amazing. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil and she anointed the feet of Jesus and she wiped his feet with her hair and the house was filled with the fragrance of oil. But a disciple, Judas Iscariot, who would betray him said, why wasn't this fragrance oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Verse 6, this he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And he was the treasurer of Jesus' ministry and charged the offering box. And he used to take out of the offering box what was put in it. Okay, there are two hearts that are on display in this story. The two hearts are revealed once it is time to give. If you ever want to know somebody's heart, just ask them to give and it will reveal to you what type of heart they have. We are saved. We're born again with a generous heart, but we're born with a selfish heart. 
Let me say it this way. We are born with a Judas heart and we're born again with a Mary heart. We're, um, God is generous. Satan is selfish. We're born just like Judas Iscariot. We're born selfish. In fact, one of the, the, the first words a child learns how to pronounce so well is the word mine. Mine, 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 mine. And they say it at just the right pitch and repetitiveness. There's a part of your spinal cord in the back that starts, mine, 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 mine. And it's usually because uh, of a young, they don't learn that word until they get a younger sibling, right? They're, when they're an only child, it's okay. I have five kids. Logan never said it till Zach was born. Mine, mine. Zach never said it till Eli was born. Eli, and just on and on. Because the younger kid is taking something from the older kid, and the older kid's screaming, mine, 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 right? And there comes a time in every parent's life where we don't care about justice and doing the right thing. We just want peace and quiet. So we go in the room, give him the toy. But dad, it's mine. No, it's not. It's mine. I bought all of it. Just give it to him. But dad, it's mine. Your mom has things that are mine. We all do it. Just mine. Give it to him. You know, just be quiet. Right? That's how we all, mine, mine. That's, you know, that's what God says. The tithe is his. He says it's mine. You can't touch it. It's mine. Now, so here's my question, okay? Um, why would Judas be upset at someone's extravagant gift? Because you read what it says. He said, why don't you sell this and give it to the poor? Now listen, if you ever hear anybody say, why doesn't that church just take that money? They don't need, they don't need to build it. Just tell them to give the money to the poor. People who say that, listen, you need to tell them, um, that statement you just said, um, you didn't make that up. Just so you know, you're quoting... The disciple who betrayed my Lord and Savior for money. If you cared about the poor, you would sell what you have and give it to the poor. So when you judge another church based on what they're doing, I can't believe the church spent money on that. They should give that to the poor. No, no, no. I can't believe that you just went out to P.F. James. You could have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and you give your money to the poor. Okay? So Judas Iscariot's the one that said that. I love peanut butter and jelly. I also, I love P.F. Chang's too. And so, um, the reason Judas said that, and it tells us, is because he was a thief. Now, would any of you ever, and be honest, be honest, we're in church, be honest, would any of you ever um, take money out of the offering box? But would you withhold money that actually belongs there? Okay, that's a whole other sermon. We're not going to talk about that. That wasn't good. Yeah, I want y'all to like me before you leave. So forget I said that. Take it back. Okay, there. Ready? Here we go. Okay. Why would Mary give such an extravagant gift? Now, let me explain to you the extravagance of her gift. Um, a denarius is one day's wage. One day's wage is denarius. If there's 365 days in a year with uh, holidays, religious stuff, and Shabbat, uh, with, with Sabbath, then they work 300 days a year. Okay? So if you work 300 days a year and one day's, salary is a, uh, one day's wage is a denarius, then 300 denarii is a year's salary. In fact, because uh, minimum wage changes, it changed. You know, when I was in, in a teenager, it was like $4 and something. Well, from 30 B.C. to 30 A.D. to 10 A.D., it, it changed. So 300 denarii was actually common vernacular for your year's salary. Whether it was that exact amount or not, it was just a common vernacular term for this is what you made last year. So I want you to think about how much money you made last year. Not what you put on your taxes, but what you really did make last year, okay? Let's think about that because we are in church. Ready? Okay, so if you take the money you made last year, let me ask you a question. If somebody gave a year's salary to Jesus... Is that an extravagant gift? Yes or no? Yes. 
Okay. What if they poured it on his feet? How extravagant is that? To pour it on his feet? Do you know why God led her to do that? Do you know that that was the only anointing his body got for burial? It says in verse 7, he shut everybody up and he said, she did this in preparation for my burial. You know, they came on Sunday with 100 pounds of spices to anoint his body, but he had already checked out of his Airbnb. He was already out of it. They, he, they thought he was going to buy the tomb and stay there, but nope, he only needed it for a little bit of time and he was done. She, she did that for his burial. Why? Why would she give a year's salary to Jesus on his feet? Do you know why? Grateful people are generous. Two months earlier, her brother was dead. If Jesus raised one of your family members from the dead today, would that be worth a year's salary to you? Yes. Ephesians 2.1 says that we were all dead in our sin. And he made all of us alive. You know what Jesus did? He saved my kids. He saved my friends. He saved my family. They're going to get to live forever because of what he did. That's worth a lot more than a year's salary to me. Generosity means to give without expecting anything in return. Okay? That's what it means. Um, and I'm closing with this. So when you give um, extravagantly and generously, you, you do it without anything in return. However, listen real close. But, 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 but. There's no way... It is possible for you to give a gift of extravagance and God not reward you. He has to because he is a rewarder. He can't not reward you. So I want to read for you in closing. I want to read the scripture that tells us what Mary's reward was. Okay, now listen, listen. You're thinking, if I were to ask you, what do you think God would do for somebody like this? She gave a year's salary. She's a woman back then. You, you might think, you know what? I bet God in return gave her two years' salary. I bet God made her a princess and let her be waited on hand and foot for the rest of her life. Such an extravagant sacrifice. Surely God gave her riches and wealth. Is that what our treasure is? As Christians, are we giving money so we can get more money? Or is our treasure souls and lives and people in heaven? Okay? So what was her... I think that her reward was the greatest reward in the entire Bible. And if just 10 of you agree with me on that so deeply, I love you forever, okay? Because I'm going to read it, you're going to think, and listen, the greatest reward in the entire Bible, entire Bible, Mark 14, 9, Jesus said this, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, let me tell you what the gospel is, Jesus died, he was buried, and he rose again. Wherever that is preached, in every ethnicity, tongue, tribe, nation, color, everywhere in the whole world, to the end of time, wherever it is preached that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, what this woman just did for me will also be told in remembrance of her gift. She didn't give to get anything, but you know what she got anyway? that her gift will never be forgotten. Even when heaven and earth pass away, this word will never pass away. Her gift will always be remembered. When I die, I don't want to be remembered for being a good preacher. I want to be remembered for somebody who sacrificed to help people's dreams 
become a reality in their life. That's what I want to live to do. I want to live to give people hope and wisdom and faith. I want their lives to be changed because of my gift. That's what I want to see happen. And I hope you do too. So give to the kingdom of God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Okay, let's go to the Lord.